are listening to Out of the Box with Rosie Tran. Out of the Box is sponsored by HugMeTees.com. Spread love, give a hug, HugMeTees.com. Guys, we are now on SoundCloud. Check out SoundCloud.com and look for Out of the Box podcast. We are excited about our new followers, and we hope that you guys will join us over on SoundCloud if you are a SoundCloud subscriber. And I just want to give a shout out to the two... Um, new reviews on iTunes. I have been begging and pleading for positive reviews and I am really excited. Thank you to those um, people who recently went on and left some positive reviews. Also, there's been some positive ratings, but the reviews um, help us out a lot more. So thank you to those uh, people who went on there this week and left some positive reviews. I'm really excited about that. Um, And I'm excited about our guest today. Um, He is a doctor and has a new book out called Doctor, the Disillusionment of the American Physician. This is his sophomore um, book. It's a New York Times bestseller. Um, His first uh, freshman book was called Intern, also about his experiences in the medical industry. Dr. Sandeep Jahar, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks. Um, I am really excited to have you on here because you definitely... um, had a lot of interesting things. Uh, were you nervous about writing the second book and, and having all these juicy details about the medical industry out there with your name on it? Uh, well, maybe a little, but, um, you know, the way the book came about is, you know, I, my, my first book was a memoir of my medical residency. It's sort of my initiation into the medical profession. And that was called intern. Um, and then, it was a few years. I started as a as a doctor. I be, I actually became a cardiologist. Um, I actually got my first job uh, 19 years after I graduated from high school. So I had been you know in a really long training, and I was uh, looking forward to starting my job. And and um, and then you know things didn't exactly work out the way I had hoped for. Um, I found that doctors were really unhappy, and and I myself became really unhappy uh, in the first few years of my uh, of my uh, you know actual job, my 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 first position as a cardiologist, and so I sort of hit a point that was you know as close to bottom as I really want to get, and so in so, at some level I just didn't really care what people thought. Um, it was just something I had to get. Uh, off my chest, and um, and I think that a lot of people do see the flaws in the American medical system, and so you know it's like um, you know I wasn't telling people anything that they didn't already sort of intuit, um, but you know putting my name on it and sort of reporting a lot of the um, just nastiness in the system, and and really in some cases just outright fraud that. Uh, occurs was, you know, it gave me some pause, obviously, but it was something that I just felt like I had to do. That is really brave. And I'm very happy that you've done that because I don't think a lot enough people speak out, you know, so many people are scared to speak out. And sometimes there are real repercussions, which, you know, we had um, a whistleblower on the show recently, that was going against, you know, big corporate banks, and he definitely was scared of losing his job and some of the negative repercussions. But I think that these things and your desire for to explain what's going on is just really important for the average person to know. Now you talked about um, 
a low level of satisfaction with a lot of doctors. And, you know, I know there's kind of a stereotype already of doctors working these long hours and, and doing it, um, you know, and, and in hospitals for hours and these long shifts and the same thing within nursing. Um, but there's this kind of idea that doctors are doing it because they love it. They care about the patients. They're passionate. And you're saying that it was hard to be a passionate and ethical doctor in the society that we have right now. Yeah. Um, you know, doctors are unhappy for a lot of different reasons. Um, and some of it has to do with w why other professionals are unhappy, like teachers or lawyers or, you know, they're... There are a whole host of professions th that used to have it pretty good, and because of corporate restrictions and um, a sort of business-mindedness that has creeped into the um, profession, there are a lot of professionals who are pretty unhappy. I mean, teachers are one of you know, are teaching is one profession that was um, has has really undergone uh, seismic shifts, you know, with um, you know changes in how. Uh, teachers are are evaluated um, and measured, and and all the testing um, that's going on, and, and the, the the different metrics that the teachers have to uh, you know have have to uh, meet. And doctors are you know the the same way, uh, but you know that that's sort of just one piece of it. You know, one piece of it is that there's changes in the medical industry that have nothing that are not coming from doctors, they're coming from insurers or the government or whatever, um, that are resulting in changes that are making doctors feel overwhelmed. There's the paperwork, there's the, 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 the increase uh, in, in malpractice, uh, liability pressures, and um, there's, there's a whole host of things. But the biggest thing that I realized, and this was the thing that really affected me the most, and I think really affected my colleagues the most, that it was almost an existential crisis. It wasn't so much that you know we had more paperwork or more this or or or, or that. You know, it wasn't sort of some, some, something tangible. It was that the system wasn't allowing us to be passionate about our patients. Um, that wasn't the case for me, and uh, you know, I, I I went into it because you know a a, a girlfriend um, got really sick. Um, when I was in college, and it introduced me to the idea of becoming a doctor, and um, uh, and I was also interested in human physiology. You know, those are sort of good reasons I think for wanting to become a doctor. Making money is not a good reason, and if you if you do it for that reason, you're going to be unhappy. Um, but most doctors don't do it for that. They do it because they really genuinely wanted to help people. And the system today is structured that it makes it harder and harder for doctors to do that. So the biggest reason why doctors are dissatisfied is not because they're making less money or they have too much paperwork or people are suing them. It's because they can't be the kind of doctor they want to be. I want to bring up something very important that you brought up because I think the teaching metaphor is a really good metaphor for people to understand because it's medicine seems very complicated, but teaching is is pretty simple. So what's going on for those of you who don't know in the teaching profession is that there's this bombardment of standardized testing and and teachers feel that they can't really teach kids because they're forced to meet these testing limits. Um, now with medicine, um, you're saying that the corporatization of the medical field, you know, you guys have to meet certain numbers. Is that right? Certain overhead and certain corporate numbers. And it's all about the numbers more than the patient care, just like in teaching 
it's more about the numbers instead of giving the kids the actual education. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I'm saying that that some of the the reasons for the numbers, um, in some world, make sense. Let me give you one example. Um, just like in teaching, right? Um, it makes sense to 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 encourage teachers to do a good job so that their students do well on standardized tests and can get into good colleges. I mean, that sort of makes sense, but. But the way that the corporate system um, demands it forces teachers to do things that they don't, they're not comfortable with, with like like teaching to the test, you know. And instead of the whole picture, the high, yeah, some of the high schools around here they have like specific classes where students are are, are just getting trained in in taking the SAT rather than you know providing a good general education that will then result in good testing scores. So in medicine, um, we know that there's some drugs that you should give patients because it helps them live longer. Um, so, but it turns out that for, for one of the, the, one example is an ACE inhibitor drug you should give to patients with heart failure. But it turns out that only about two-thirds of physicians prescribe those drugs. Why? Because doctors are too busy, they forget, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're fallible human beings. So it makes perfect sense to try to get doctors to prescribe ACE inhibitors more to heart failure patients because it'll, it'll help them live longer. But what the corporate system does is it demands that doctors prescribe these drugs and they get dinged um, for not prescribing the drugs. They get penalties or they get less reimbursement. Um, and so it hits them in the pocketbook. So what doctors then turn around and do is say, you know what, every single patient I see is going to get an ACE inhibitor. And, and I don't care if, if the patient, um, you know, has, has kidney trouble that, that might, uh, make prescribing an ACE inhibitor not such a good idea. I don't want to document that they have this exception to getting an ACE inhibitor or some little old lady who maybe is on 20 different medications um, and normally I would not think about starting the ACE inhibitor. Well, I don't care. I'm just going to start it. And, um, and, and so they feel like they're being forced uh, to, um, to, to do these things that don't really make sense. And it's, it, they're being, they're, they're sort of, their autonomy is being taken away. And, and that's the same for teachers. You know, they're, they're not being allowed to create their own lesson plans. They're they're being forced to um, you know teach to the test. And and lawyers have their own problems. So it, you know, this is part and parcel, I think, of a big change in American society where previously respected professionals are just getting screwed by the the corporate system. I want to talk about something you mentioned because I think the average person has quite a different stereotype and you're not the first doctor I've spoken to who said this about the pay. So you talk about struggling to make ends meet as a doctor and I think a lot of people have a stereotype that you know doctors are extremely wealthy, they're making all this money and and you talk about well maybe in specialized fields but a general practitioner is having a hard time to pay his bills. And is this because a lot of money is going to insurance companies? Where is all this money going when people are going to the hospital and they're getting these $20,000 bills? It's going to insurance companies. It's going to insurance executives. It's going to hospital executives. It's, you know, I mean, people are paying more and more for health care, but less and less of that money is actually going to doctors. In fact, doctors' salaries only make up uh, 
somewhere between 10 and 20% of the healthcare budget. Okay, 80% to 90% is going somewhere else. It's not to doctors. Um, now, look, uh, you know, doctors, even primary care physicians, they do better than most people. I mean, no one's going to argue that doctors are poor or they're 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 gonna you know they're they're suffering financially. But let me just give you just an example, just an, just an idea, so your 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 listeners can get some idea. Um, someone who's in primary care, if they see twenty patients every single day, six days a week. Okay, now seeing twenty patients is not easy. I mean, you can imagine, okay? So 20 patients every single day, and to fit those 20 patients in is like, you know, maybe 10 minutes, 12 minutes a patient, okay? Um, and then all the paperwork associated with that care, okay? Um, the way the reimbursement is, that doctor, um, uh, after paying overhead, might be making something like, a hundred and like a low hundred, maybe like $120,000. And this okay? is working very long hours. Working 20 hours, 20 patients a day, six days a week and taking four weeks uh, off a year for vacation. Okay. So $120,000 is nothing to scoff at. But then you add the fact that um, they're paying maybe $20,000 a year in, in, in malpractice insurance. So you take that off. And then you and then you add um, uh, their loans from medical school. Most, Student loans, a lot which of medical sometimes are three hundred thousand plus, leaving medical school. More, sometimes more. I mean, I know people who have four hundred thousand plus. You add college, and you're looking at sometimes half a million dollars that they're in debt. Okay, um, and then you add, you know, and then obviously you know taxes and everything. So at the end of the day, you know, you end up with after you pay your loans, you end up with a fairly small amount for the amount of work you had to do it's not it's not it's not going to put you in the poorhouse but it's certainly not the vision that most people have of doctors like strolling around the golf course yes and uh, <laughs> you know and, and and you know having you know going going to you know multiple vacations and having a home in florida i guess i just i guess i just want to make it clear to people because a lot of people think that they're increasing hospital bills and their increasing medical bills are going towards the medical professionals that are serving them. And I wanted to make a distinction that it's not going towards you guys. No, it's going to drug companies. It's going to drug company executives. It's going to insurance company executives. It's going to hospital executives, some of whom are doctors, but a lot of them are just MBAs. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there know, is, has Obamacare helps this system anymore? Is it making it worse? You know, I don't think that Obamacare has done enough to change the system to cut down on um, the number one, the waste, and also where all the money is going. Obamacare could have done a lot better job in allowing um, Medicare to negotiate drug prices. I don't think we need more billions and billions of dollars going to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I mean, they need obviously some money to recoup their investments uh, and and continue to produce good drugs but do, do they need the outlandish profits that they're they're making i don't think so 
So what if you had a private practice and you were able to see clients the way you want? Do you think that you would go broke? And I'm saying this because I recently experienced exactly what you're talking about. I had a simple ear infection and I went to the doctor. Um, I was seen for less than two minutes and I was actually misdiagnosed with a sinus infection and it took six months to cure what could have been cured in a week because I was kept having to go back and the wait list at my um, hospital were so long, it actually took two months to get another appointment and then two months after that to get um, an appointment with an ear, throat, nose specialist. And and I was, it was something very simple, just an ear infection. So, I mean, that was my experience from hell. But, you know, can a doctor be ethical in the system and and say, hey, I'm going to see patients for 30 minutes, an hour and and take my time and get to know them the way it was, you know, back in the day. Is that even physically feasibly possible in our current system? Well, I mean, um, a lot of my colleagues joke, if you're independently wealthy, you know, (laughs) okay, you know, you know what I mean? I mean, if if you're not doing doctoring to earn a living, then you can do it ethically. Consider it. I mean, consider what I what I what I just said. Um, the the doctor who saw twenty patients six hours uh, six, six days a week, um, primary care, seeing a moderately uh, sick population, not super sick, not very mildly sick, moderately sick. So they're getting sort of moderate reimbursement per patient. You're talking like you know, one twenty to one thirty thousand dollars a year. Now, now if you see patients for uh, you know, a new patient or a uh, follow-up for um, in half an hour or a new patient for an hour, then you're not going to be able to see more than about, you know, what, 10 patients uh, a day. So cut that revenue, you know, in half. So and then you ask yourself, are you going to be able to pay off your loans and, and uh, you know, save for your kid's college and, and, and whatever? I mean, look, I'm not trying to argue that doctors are, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, you know, Play a violin for doctors. That's that's not my goal. But you're just saying it's, it's not just what it used to be. It's not what it used to be. And what ends up happening is that that doctors end up running on a treadmill because no one wants to, you know, everyone wants to, you know, earn a good living. So they end up running on a treadmill, seeing patients every six minutes, eight minutes, and then someone comes in with an with a with a with an ear infection and they don't take the time to look in the ear and 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 do the right thing and um because they're rushed. And so the patient ends up uh with a problem that could have been fixed that lasts for six months, like like you. Is you know? is it uncommon I, what happened to me? Because I was just totally shocked and No, it's oh my God, it's not uncommon. <laughs> it's this happens this happens all the time, all the time. Every, uh, you know, this this happens every day. Um, that 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 because of a lack of time, a mis- there's a misdiagnosis. Um, this is common, and this is why, you know, you 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 remember the pre meds in college, right? I remember them. I wasn't a pre-med in college. I, I, I ended up studying physics and then I went back to medicine later. But the pre-meds in college, they were like perfectionists, you know. They, 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 were, they, they did well in school. They were like focused and whatever. And you take those people and they have this vision of what they want to do with their careers and then you put them in a situation where they're constantly making mistakes, 
because they don't have enough time to, to, to see your, the, their patients, how do you think they're going to react? They're going to be miserable because they're perfectionists to begin with. You're taking people that are passionate, caring, perfectionists, you know, probably top of their class, wanting to do something positive for the world, and they're put into, it's kind of like a, you know, a round hole in a square peg. It doesn't fit. Yeah, it doesn't fit. I want to talk about your time speaking um, as promoting a pharmaceutical drug. You talk about this as you were very mm -hmm. concerned about some of the effects of the drug and uh, you were doing this for extra money because you weren't making yep. enough money. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what was that like? What, what were you just, you know, felt like you were stuck between a rock and a hard place. You're here out there promoting, giving your name to this drug, yet it has these possible negative side effects that can really hurt people. Well, it, I mean, it was a drug that, that, uh, that I, I believed in, I prescribed to my patients. So at the time you the did believe in it at first. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I totally, I mean, I would, I, I would never speak for a drug that I didn't believe in. Um, but the whole, you know, the whole experience was just like, just a little gross. You know, it, it, it wasn't exactly, um, what I think of as a professional experience, you know, where, you know, I, I mean, first of all, I, I was speaking about this drug. Um, no drug is a hundred percent perfect, right? There's always going to be some issues with it. So I wanted to present those issues in a balanced way, but the company wouldn't let that. They said, you got, you have to use our slides. Um, and you know, I, I, eventually sort of managed to convince them to allow me to use, you know, my own slides, um, you know, but it was a lot of like negotiating back and forth, you know. Um, so in the end, I sort of felt like I was just peddling a drug rather than presenting a balanced view of the drug. And even though it was a drug I prescribed to my patients, I believed in. But you wanted um, to give the whole story. I wanted to give the whole story. And, and then, but, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it was just, it was just like a trip uh, through a public toilet. It was just, uh, you know, it just left. It just left me feeling like this is just, you know, this is just gross. This is not what I want to, you know, where I want to be. And then eventually, I, um, you know, I, I, I stopped it. It sounds um, like they when, were kind of using you as like more of a salesman than actually a medical professional. But pharmaceutical companies do this all the time with with doctors and and doctors who are, you know, who are sort of struggling to pay back loans and this and that, some of them make those compromises. And, you know, I made that compromise, uh, for about, uh, I don't know, maybe a year. Um, and, but then when the data came out that suggested that the drug was not as beneficial as I thought it was, I stopped it. I said, I, I, I could, I, I couldn't do it anymore. Even though the pay was still there, even though, you know, they were still paying, you know, money, you know, and, and they still wanted me, but I was like, you know, this is, I can't, I, I don't want to do this. And, um, uh, you know, th that along with, you know, a lot of other stuff, um, starting to work in, uh, a colleague's private practice and seeing how he practiced, um, it just led to a, just a deepening disillusionment with the profession I had entered. And, and it got to a point where I sort of felt like I was like in a midlife crisis, uh, and, and was really down and really depressed about the whole thing. And, um, and it got to a point where, you know, you asked me, did I care about what people were going to say? You know, when you 
hit a, a, a certain point, you just don't give a shit. And, uh, that's <laughs> no, that's great. Um, I want to talk yeah. about your time working in your colleague's office. You were working in this office where this doctor was prescribing these excessive procedures, these stress tests. And you're ta- yeah. you talk about um, it. the stress tests were a highly billable uh, procedure, whereas just a doctor's visit to the doc- doctor's office wasn't that lucrative. So it's kind of like a, a right. pay a pay to play type thing where people are being prescribed excessive things that aren't really helping them. And that can be scary when you're dealing with someone's health. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I started working with this guy and he had a mill, um, of, you know, patients who are coming in and getting all these, uh, uh, tests, these ultrasounds and these stress tests. And, um, you know, I wasn't prescribing these tests. I wasn't saying, okay, you need to have a stress test. If I would see a patient, I would say, m- much more often than not, you don't need a stress test. You're fine. Go home. Um, but he was ordering these tests, and 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 I was, I just felt like I was a part of it, um, even because I was just working in the office. And even though I wasn't ordering the tests, um, I was just, I was there, you know, part of that practice, doing this, this moonlighting, and it just just made me feel really dirty and that was probably the biggest um force that pushed me into this 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 crisis and and then you know it, it just occurred to me that that this crisis was so, sort of emblematic of the midlife crisis of american medicine it was that they were it was the same story do you think that what he was doing is rare that he's just a corrupt doctor or do you think that this is something that is just a regular practice that happens in offices and medical you know hospitals and places all across the u.s on a regular basis i think it happens on a regular basis um i think the reasons are sometimes different um for some doctors the reason they order a lot of tests is because they don't want you know they feel that ordering a bunch of tests means they won't be sued they don't have any time you know uh you come in with an ear earache and you, they just don't have the time or, or 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 the energy or whatever it is to to look in the ear properly examine you think about what's going on so they'll just like say okay just get a cat scan of your ear or something you know um or or get an mri make sure you don't have xyz that that they know you don't have and you know you don't have but it's like okay just 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 do it you know, it's just part of the culture. Just do it. And, and then th- there are some doctors who do it because they know they'll make more money um, by doing extra tests. And, and are they the majority? No. Are they a impossibly small minority? No. There's somewhere in between. Let's talk about um, the excessive procedures and, and lawsuits because you mentioned um, – that there's a fear of lawsuits. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I actually worked in a hospital when I was a teenager, you know, I was just a volunteer candy striper. And there was time that I spent in the uh, legal department of the hospital I was working in. And there was a whole legal department. Um, I don't know if this is a common place in other hospitals, but they had all these files of information for potential lawsuits or for lawsuits that had happened. And a lot of times you don't really hear about that side of medicine. You know, are you guys regularly getting sued? Is there this constant fear of lawsuits? I just remember, 
you know, very briefly, and then I, I heard you mention it and also have read about it, that it's a it's a big fear. Are doctor do doc are doctors personally liable? Uh, can they push the blame on you know what the institution that's kind of forcing them to behave this way? Are you guys having all of the liability if something goes wrong? I think in the end, the doctor has the liability. If the insurance company says no, we're not going to approve this test for what X Y Z reason, and the doctor then doesn't go to fight for it um, and then the patient ends up having a tumor um, the insurance company that didn't allow the CAT scan that the doctor wanted to get won't be sued the doctor is going to be sued because they 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 didn't get the test so um, I mean that's sort of a rough I mean obviously there are exceptions but that's sort of the um, the 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 the, the rough way of looking at it that that um, we are doctors are liable for um, for for ins for insurance company decisions and um, uh, and the insurance company will tell you this is not a medical decision this is a decision um, based on uh, coverage or whatever so they they sort of exonerate themselves from any liability um, by saying that now. Do doctors get sued? Um, yeah, they do. They get sued quite frequently. In fact, I'm a cardiologist. Um, uh, roughly 20% of cardiologists are sued every year. Wow, that's a really huge number. <laughs> so you're talking about um, oh, there's a one in five chance of being sued every year. So you're talking about uh, every five years on average, uh, every cardiologist is going to be sued. Now, all those suits don't don't necessarily go to court, all those who don't necessarily result in a judgment, but there is that lingering fear. Um, and OB, OBGYNs are another specialist that, that very frequently get sued, neurosurgeons also. And, um, and the malpractice uh, premiums are so high now because of you know, so many lawsuits. And a lot of the lawsuits are not, um, there, there, are, there are certain doctors who seem to get sued all the time. You know, so a lot of the the reason the the premiums are increased is because to defend those doctors who are getting sued multiple times. Um, so, you know, it's very frustrating for the rest of us who try and do a good job, and and you know, and and are you know very rarely um, you know litigated against. So, what do you think is the solution to this problem? What what would you recommend to help? change the system for the better to to enact change that's going to actually help patients and help doctors and not create this kind of giant machine that just keeps going and going there's no simple solution that is uh that's something i'm pretty pretty sure about after you know thinking about this for a pretty long time um because we can't reinvent the system we have to deal, work with the system that we have um you know, if you were to start the system all over again, you might want to go to a single payer system uh, where the government is is you know in charge and and uh, is negotiating prices and there's less paperwork. Now you have multiple different insurance companies and they all have their own systems and it's just a big big mess. So there's no simple solution, but I think one uh, thing that I believe would be a good thing is 
having more and more doctors just be salaried and not be um, working for in a, in a fee for service system that rewards doctors for um, doing more and more stuff. Um, now you know. I, I mean, I work in a in a hospital where I get a salary, and I get that salary pretty much regardless of whether I order you know twenty tests or order you know two tests. So when you take that financial incentive away, I think then the doctors start they start practicing in the way that they they want to practice the, the way that's right and and all the other pressures and incentives at least they're still there but but some of them are taken away i mean the, the liability pressure is still there but the 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 financial incentive to just do more and more and more is for taken no reason away. right <laughs> yeah for, for yeah exactly Okay, I want to talk about preventative care because you talked a lot about ordering these tests once people are sick already. And I think I read a statistic that the majority of chronic illnesses can be prevented by preventative care. And I don't really hear that word that much when it comes to the medical industry these days. Yeah, um, it doesn't pay to do preventative care, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think the system wants people sick in a way? I mean, not not you, obviously, and and doctors who care about people, but the insurance companies, the pharma companies. I don't think the insurance companies want people sick. Um, I think the pharma companies, you know, I'm not going to, I can't get into their minds, but clearly they make money when people are sick and take their medications. Um, You know, I mean, even doctors, you know, if you're a surgeon, you're paid handsomely for doing an operation. Um, you're not paid, you're paid, ne- you know, n- next to nothing comparatively to spend an hour with the patient discussing the risks and benefits and eventually talking, maybe talking them out of the operation because it's not in their best interest. You know, you're not paid anything for that. Um, uh, most doctors are paid nothing for advising their patients to, you know, exercise and stop smoking and, and, and whatever, but they are paid to see the patients once they develop emphysema and see them over and over and over again. Um, and the oxygen company is paid for bringing tanks to the patient when, as soon as they develop emphysema and, uh, drug companies are paid for giving inhalers to the patients. Um, but that first step, you know, is, is preventing the disease. Um, there's very little in it for anyone in the system to be to spend healthy. a lot of time doing that. Yeah. Except maybe the patients. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question that I am just personally curious about. I know growing up, I had the same doctor for years and years and years, and he knew me pretty well. Um, my pediatrician and, also, I had an OBGYN for many, many years, and I noticed that there's been a shift from that doctor-patient relationship, um, and I'm not sure what's caused it, because it seems like, and I know you're saying that doctors are really rushed, and they don't have time to see patients, but I just feel like there's been a shift from that one-on-one doctor relationship of someone knowing you your whole life to, it seems more casual, almost like you're just going to a fast food restaurant or something. I don't know yeah. if it's me as an adult not taking time to go and find a doctor that I can see, but it just seems like everyone I know, they don't really have a primary care physician. It's just whoever their insurance or random. It doesn't seem like there's that relationship anymore. 
Yeah. I mean, if you try to get a primary physician appointment in some parts of this country, you may have to wait three months because people don't want to do primary care because you have to see 20 patients every day, six days a week, you know, to, 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 to make the, the kind of salary we've been talking about. And then you're saddled with all these loans. So people don't want to do primary care. They want to do the more lucrative specialties. Um, and the primary care doctors, um, because the reimbursement is so relatively low, they're seeing packing more and more patients into their schedules, and then they just don't have time to develop a relationship with the patient. Um, so that old-time doctor-patient relationship is virtually gone. I mean, you, you just don't see it. Um, I mean, maybe some doctors who are doing concierge medicine that where they don't accept insurance and they just get paid directly, um, and they have they can afford to spend more time with the patients. But that's not a solution for for most patients. That's just a solution for well-heeled patients. Is is that an option to just not have insurance and do a pay? I don't. I I remember doing that as a little girl, but it just seems like insurance has gotten just bigger and bigger and bigger. I remember we actually had a yeah. family doctor. My parents are Vietnamese immigrants, and he was a Vietnamese doctor mm-hmm. that you know he catered to the immigrant community, and we just paid him. Like I don't even remember having insurance, or if we did have insurance yeah. until later. Is that even an option yeah. these days to just have reasonable rates, not marked up for insurance, and just Go to a doctor. I mean, some, some doctors don't accept insurance, um, and some of them say it's uh, you know it's because they don't want to deal with insurance companies and and they they want the patient to pay them directly, um, and they charge you know a rate that's probably typically above what an insurance company pays, um, but then they're they have more time to spend with the patient. They're not constantly looking at the clock. Um, in some cases, that's better for the patients. Um, but uh, you know, if you can't afford your premiums uh, as a patient, your your insurance premiums, you're, you're not going to afford these doctors who are typically charging more than what an insurance company would pay. So, um, so I, I don't. It's not a solution for for. It's not a solution out of the mess. It, it's made, it's just a solution for people who have the money to pay for the extra time and the extra care. But are, um, I, I get what you're saying, but aren't the prices from insurance companies marked up to cover all their costs. I guess what I'm asking the, is I went, so I went to a chiropractor yeah. and um, I was in, I was in a car accident and I went to a chiropractor and they were going to charge me an insane amount because they were assuming that the other um, insurance from the other person who hit me was going to pay for it. And it ended up not the claim didn't go through and I was left with this huge chiropractor bill. I know that's not a doctor, but, and I told them, Hey, I I can't pay this. And they said, okay, we'll give you the cash price. And they just gave me like a way it was like 80% reduced. And I know that um, that's happened before with other medical things, not with me personally, but um, there seems to be these two systems and that's happened with me with dental work. Yeah. What providers charge the insurance company is not necessarily what they get from the insurance company. They'll, they, they may charge an outlandish price, um, and the insurance company marks it down and discounts the price, sometimes to 10% of what they're asking. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so, so it's not necessarily that you would end up paying that, uh, that amount. But, um, you know, insurance companies charge high premiums, and they pay out those premiums to doctors who see the patients and whatever's extra they keep for themselves. Um, and 
there is usually a big differential between those two numbers and there's usually a significant amount of profit especially in recent years for most insurance companies so you know I mean I guess one thing you're saying is well why pay those premiums just pay the doctor directly some people say that's the, the, some people want to do that um, they think that's the, the the best way to do it because when you're not um, when you're paying the doctor directly you're more apt to shop for you know comparison shop and do the best uh, you know like, like you would comparing you know cars or whatever um, and that that makes sense to some degree but there's there's also a big component of healthcare which is just catastrophic care where you can't really do any comparison shopping and you can't pay out of pocket you know like being in the hospital is like three thousand dollars a day um, you spend three days in the hospital that's ten thousand dollars you know you have to have insurance for that but maybe for like more elective you know sort of preventative care maybe it makes sense to have you know uh, a system where people just pay the doctor directly and just don't go to you know just don't go to the insurance company don't don't pay the insurance company um, I mean that is one way to do it and that's what a lot of um, you know people on the right like Republicans are, are saying uh, that reserve insurance just for catastrophic care and get rid of it for elective care um, you know just like for the earache or just going to see the doctor for just a sore throat or whatever um, you talk a lot about the paperwork. There's so much paperwork. And I actually have a friend who was an orthopedic surgeon and he left the medical industry because he said he felt like he was spending so much time filling out paperwork and barely any time dealing with patients. And that's the reason he got into medicine because he wanted to deal with patients. Is this, mm-hmm. is, is this paperwork just legal paperwork or is it paperwork to actually get paid from the insurance companies? Um, well, it's both. I mean, there's there's paperwork, there's increased documentation, um, uh, so that you can get paid. And then after you submit the bill, there's often um, paperwork to um, ensure that you get uh, reimbursed uh, for uh, you know for the work that you've done. So the paperwork is just enormous. In fact, um, in in the United States. Uh, I I I have all the numbers in the book. I can't remember right off the top of my head, but but um, doctors pay uh, office staff uh, something like sixty thousand dollars a year just to handle paperwork. Um, so let's you know, they say have to hire. Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Let's yeah. just say that you're with a patient for ten minutes. How much paperwork is incongruent with that? Is it ten minutes of paperwork, or is it like half an hour of paperwork per ten minutes? Well, it's uh, writing a note. It's it's then. There's a lot of uh, extra stuff that happens afterwards. You know, you're, you order a test, the insurance company says no, then you have to call and argue. Um, uh, you know, you've got to uh, call the uh, insurance company and argue why you prescribe this drug over that drug. Um, and then um, you're talking to someone who doesn't necessarily know why and, and they don't have medical training. So then you have to fill out, you have to write a letter to the medical director um, to, to justify the you know this drug over that drug or or why you're doing this test and um, you know a lot of that can be done by office staff and and you know in my practice it doesn't really a lot of it doesn't come to me but some of it does sometimes I just they they say look they're 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 saying they're not going to approve this echocardiogram you have to call and explain exactly why you're doing it and that can that conversation can take fifteen minutes 
um, and or you call and there's no one available. They keep you on hold. Um, so on average, I would say the amount of paperwork and administrative duties is it's probably something roughly, um, you know, half your day, you know, or, or maybe a third of your day. That's a lot. Is doing that. That is a yeah. lot. Um, now, you talk about how, you know, our country has some of the best medicine for, you know, rare diseases, Ebola, other things like that, but chronic diseases like diabetes and other things like that, sometimes it's uncoordinated. So what exactly mm-hmm. does that mean? Is, is it like the right hand's not talking to the left or this person's seeing multiple doctors and they're not communicating clearly or the insurance isn't communicating? What, what does that mean? It, it means that, you know, you used to have one doctor, you know, who could sort of coordinate your care, who was in charge of your case. Now you have multiple doctors. Um, I mean, part of it is that medicine has become more complex. You know, no one doctor knows everything like maybe they did in, you know, in the 1940s or something. But now, you know, you, you it's become so technological and so complex that you have people who are just handling like small aspects you know, even in like my, my area, like I'm a heart specialist, but then within the heart, there's like the electrical system. And then there's, there's card, cardiologists who just specialize in the electrical system and other cardiologists who just specialize in the coronary arteries. And, you know, so you have so many more doctors than you ever used to have. And, uh, and they don't talk to each other because they'd have so little time to, you know, discuss, uh, their their cases with um, with with the other doctors on the case, so uh, they end up making decisions that are sometimes in contradiction to other doctors, and that's it's sort of back and forth. I mean, I can't tell you how many times this happens with my patients, where uh, I have patients with heart failure who need to take water pills to keep the fluid out of their lungs, but they'll go to their kidney doctor who says, "Oh no, no, stop the water pill because it's it's it's." It's irritating your kidneys. Well, you know what? We know that already. Instead of someone picking up the phone and telling you that they're going to stop the diuretics uh, or the water pills so you can tell them don't do that, they just make the decision. And then the patient ends up stopping it and then they end up in the hospital because they have fluid uh, throughout their lungs. And then you have to, you know, uh, uh, correct the situation. Um, And it's like this back and forth. It's very uncoordinated when you have care that is so hyper-specialized. So and, do you um, think hyper-specialization is a, is a bad thing because of the fact that um, people can't, I mean, you're a specialist, but because people can't, you know, get the whole picture basically? Yeah, I mean, hyper-specialization in, in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it's bad when the specialists aren't talking and it's bad when there isn't someone who's helping to coordinate the care. You know, a specialist should make a recommendation and the, the primary doctor the one who's on the case, who knows the patient the best, knows the patient's values, and knows the patient um, from you know childhood, say, should be able to say, you know what, I, I understand your recommendation that the patient should have surgery. I know this patient. Uh, I don't think this patient will do well with surgery. I I know this patient's values. I've spoken to the patient, and so I'm I'm going to reject that recommendation. But if you don't have someone who's kind of like the, like the, on your side, the, right? <laughs> On your side, quarterback, this is who's 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 helping to coordinate everything, then then the patients end up having to make those decisions. And then I'll have patients come in the office say, Well, this doctor said have surgery, and this other doctor said don't have it, and I have no idea what to do. And they ask me 
to make the decision. Well, I have no idea what to do. Um, you know, that's where hyper-specialization becomes very counterproductive. I see. Um, I notice a lot of doctors are moving uh, towards a mix of East and Western medicine. Um, I, I don't know if that's a trend or a fad or because a lot of people seem to be a little bit disillusioned with the big pharma. Um, what, what's your opinion on this? Do you know what I'm talking about? How, how some doctors are, are moving more towards a mix of both, but uh, sometimes a lot of Eastern medicine isn't covered by traditional uh, insurance. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I don't know a lot about Eastern medicine or, um, you know, Ayurvedic medicine or, um, so, so, you know, it's, it's not really my area. I mean, I know that some doctors do practice, um, uh, you know, various things, um, herbal medicine, some practice homeopathic medicine, acupuncture. I mean, there's a big industry for that, for so-called alternative or complementary medicine. Um, but it's not something that I practice, so I can't, I, I can't really comment on it. Okay. Well, we know why um, you wrote this book, because, you know, you were feeling as the title says, disillusioned, and you wanted to get your story out there. But this isn't your first book. This is actually your sophomore book, your first book, Intern, uh, which was out a couple years before that. Um, what made you decide to get into becoming an author from being a doctor? Yeah, I was always interested in writing, uh, but I grew up with immigrant Indian parents who had no clue to, <laughs> to what, what that meant for my my eventual uh, livelihood, you know, <laughs> my dad would my dad would say uh, non science is nonsense. <laughs> okay, um, and, and uh, you know he wanted me to become a doctor, and then when I said no initially, he said, "Well, you do something, you know, where you can make a living, and and writing wasn't going to do that." So, so I ended up studying physics. I went to physics graduate school. Uh, I was at Berkeley. Um, and then eventually, you know, as I had mentioned, my, my, my very close girlfriend got sick and, and then I started to get more, you know, attracted to medicine through that whole experience. And then I decided to go to medical school. Um, but, uh, you know, I was always interested in writing. Um, and it was something that I just remember being attracted to even when I was a kid and, and then when I finally went to, um, got into medical school, I applied uh, just on a lark for a science uh, journalism fellowship, and and I just wrote an essay and I applied, and about maybe ten people got it through in the country, and about two hundred fifty people applied, and and I I didn't think I was going to get it. I just wrote the essay and I just figured what whatever happens, and and I got it, and they sent me to Time Magazine. So I spent a summer at Time Magazine before I went to medical school, and that just got that's I got bitten by the the juices the, were flowing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, and and then I got I, I write about this whole experience in in my first book, Intern. Um, but but then that whole thing um, when I left Time Magazine, I asked them uh, for some names of people I could call on in the future, and then I got a name of someone at the New York Times, and then. Um, I, I basically barged into his office uh, of uh, one of the top editors when I was in medical school, and 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 asked if I could write for them, and and the guy like thought I was crazy, and <laughs> told, me to, 
told me to go away and never come back basically. But, but, um, but I started writing, I, w- I went to Washington university in St. Louis for medical school and I started writing for the St. Louis post dispatch when I was in medical school. And then I sent my stuff to the New York times. And eventually when I came to New York city to do my internship and in residency, um, uh, I had a, a small portfolio of articles I had written as a medical student, and the Times was interested, and they gave me this this option to write about my residency, and I started doing that, and and that led to the book uh, Intern. So, um, is your dad still with us, or has he? Yes, he is. So, how yes, does he, he feel now that you're a New York Times bestselling author, and that's what you always wanted was to be a writer, and you kind of got both worlds: you're a doctor and a writer. Yeah, he, you know he. He has like, like a lot of parents, he has like this revisionist history. He's like, aren't you glad I encourage you to become, you know, to go to medical school and then to write about medicine? I'm like, I don't remember that, dad. I, I don't remember you ever encouraging me to write. He's like, well, it was for your own good, but I knew you were going to write anyway. Uh, you know, and aren't you, aren't you glad you have like a profession to fall back on? And I'm like, yeah, all right, fine, whatever. That is so <laughs> funny that you said that. My mom has the same revisionist history. She's like, oh, remember when I used to take you to go do this and that? I was always supportive yeah. of you doing whatever you want. I said, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so true. Well, um, so where can people find your book? Where can people find you online? How can people connect with you, buy the book? Um, so uh, you can the, – the, the book is called Doctored. Um, uh, the disillusionment of an American physician, and uh, you can get that on Amazon or you know in most bookstores. Um, and the first book is called Intern: A Doctor's Initiation, and you can get that on Amazon also. Um, and and at it's still available in most bookstores I go to. I'll, I'll, I'll you know sometimes I'll You'll check, check it out. Right? Have <laughs> a copy. I'm like, okay, that's that's good. Um, and. Um, and you could, you know, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think you and I are followers. Um, I'm at uh, uh, at s jahar s j a u h a r, um, uh, or you can just email me, you know, um, or send me a message on Twitter or whatever. But um, you know, I, I I love to hear from readers, and I I, I do uh, respond to every email I get. So um, so uh, you know, I I'd love for your listeners to um, give the book a chance, uh, read it, uh, and tell me what they think. Yeah, guys, so go on Amazon and check out the book and also on outoftheboxpodcast.com. We will have links to his Twitter and also his book on Amazon so you guys can go ahead and buy that. One more question. Um, So, you know, you said you kind of hit rock bottom and you were just willing to just write about anything and you didn't care who read it. Now, is most of the feedback from other doctors like a high five, like, yeah, man, you tell it. Or are people kind of like, hey, shut up. Don't tell everyone, you know, all this bad stuff about our industry. Like what, what's been the feedback from, from your colleagues? It's been a mix. Um, some, some doctors are like, hey, you know, uh, uh, what, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what, what, I mean, this is, you know. This is this is crazy, you know. Uh, or or we'll say that I overstate the problem. Um, other doctors, I've, I've like I walked out of the Obama pan at the hospital, and two doctors actually applauded, you know, which never ever happened to me, and <laughs> never happened again. Um, uh, and then there was uh, there there have been 
I'd say a large number of doctors who are like, so, hey, you know, I heard you wrote this book uh, and it's a New York Times bestseller and it's about like medicine and like fraud and whatever. And they're like, like, why the hell are, are people buying this book? Everyone knows this, ha- this happens. Everyone knows this is going on. And I'm like, uh, okay, not everyone. Um, so, uh, you know, so it's, it, it's, it's been mixed. Okay. Are you ever scared for your life? Like you're going to go to a pharmaceutical convention and all of a sudden, you know, two guys in a suit are going to be like, follow us. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh-huh. No, but then now I'll, I'll be sure not to accept any invitations, but they're not really forthcoming anyway. <laughs> are you still getting offers to speak out on, on, I mean, actually, I think your endorsement would be a very positive endorsement for any pharma company now because you've, you've stated how ethical you are. So if your name is behind a certain drug, I think that would be a good thing. Pharmaceutical companies would say, hey, he's really honorable and ethical. So he's going to, you know, his name is a is a huge stamp on the product because you've said in the book and, you know, in interviews that you only endorse something that you really believe in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, if they reach out to me and, and you know, if I can present things the way I feel is fair and balanced, then, then yes. But most pharmaceutical companies, I mean, the reality is that they have their own corporate mission and it's to sell drugs. It's to sell more and more drugs and, and they don't want anyone presenting a fair and balanced view. They want, they want someone who's going to champion their drug. That's, that's the reality. Um, are there still drugs now that you wholeheartedly endorse regardless of the side effects? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you have to keep side effects in 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 view, but I mean there there are drugs that I I believe are you know are are very beneficial to patients. Um, uh, you know I, I believe that a lot of statin drugs are uh, generally for the right patient group life saving. You know like Lipitor and and, and those drugs. Um, that is a, that's the cholesterol drug, correct? Cholesterol drug, yeah. yeah. I mean I don't, I don't think they should be put in the water like maybe pharmaceutical companies want, but, but I think they're generally very positive. I wouldn't have a problem, uh, endorsing a drug like that. Um, partly because I take it myself, you know, I, I, I know that what I need to, to keep healthy. And, and so I, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that, but, um, but you know, all drugs, you know, they have side effects and, and, you have to be smart about who you prescribe them to. I'm more concerned, you know, obviously you're talking about drugs for your health, which I don't have as much of an issue with. I'm concerned about some of these psychoactive drugs and, and drugs used in psychotherapy because I know so many people who have gotten just insanely addicted um, mm-hmm. to some of these psychosomatic drugs. And, and, and I don't, I know some of them do have qualities, but it seems like every single day I'm hearing about another quote unquote you know, psychiatric disorder that I'm not sure is a disorder. You know, some, some kids yeah. that I'm I, obviously I'm not a doctor, but some kids that I genu- genuinely do not have ADHD or are on Ritalin. I, I think, you know, that's part, some of that behavior is part of being a child, but, yeah. um, you know, that I'm not a doctor. So I totally agree with that. And I think a lot of psychiatrists agree with that. That kids are way, way over medicated, over medicated, right? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. it's too much. And, and a yeah. lot of times people are just brainwashed. I have a friend who's a doctor and yeah. he's so into the pharma world, I think. And he gets trips paid for and other things, which I thought was illegal, but I guess it's not. <laughs> yeah. No, right. And um, he's prescribing all these drugs and it's kind of scary. So 
I think to the listeners out there, do your due diligence and, and, and do what feels right and, you know, make sure that you have a good doctor that's got your back, like you said, a good quarterback. So yes. thank you so much um, for being on the show. And is there thank anything you. else that you would like to uh, talk about or tell people to where they no, can find you or anything else? No, just, I mean, just re- reach out to me, uh, you know, by email or Twitter or whatever. And um, uh, I'd love for people to, uh, you know, at least take a look at the book and, 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 to, and, and share some feedback. Do you have and, a follow-up book in the works? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we want to hear the third the third series to the book. Um, okay, okay. Uh, medicine: How everything got fixed. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, a solution. Okay. Well, okay. thank you so much for being a guest in the show, guys. This has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. Out of the Box Podcast is sponsored by HugMeTees.com. Spread love, give a hug. HugMeTees.com. And guys, don't forget to go on iTunes and click on the subscribe button. We have a lot of subscribers and the numbers have been increasing. But if you've been listening for a couple weeks, couple episodes now, why not click on the subscribe button? It helps us out a lot and pushes our show up on the iTunes featured list and helps other people find out about the show. So that helps us out a lot. If you would like to support the show, you can go on outoftheboxpodcast.com and click on the support button. We are now accepting Litecoins, Bitcoins, and other alternative currency. And of course, as always, cold hard cash. Guys, this has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. 